Well, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 11. That's where we will be this morning. We'll be in chapter 11 for probably the last time, um, in, in this series anyway. Uh, we've been in chapter 11 for the last couple of weeks, and there are just a few things that, as it were, jumped out at me while um, studying for and, and preparing for the sermon for the first sermon on chapter 11. Uh, I, I just kept seeing things that were almost too good to pass up. In fact, they were too good to pass up, so I'm not passing them up. Uh, and so, then we'll begin... Uh, with Ezekiel chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, if you're going there in your Bibles. And the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore, say, so this is God to Ezekiel, therefore say, thus says the sovereign Lord, the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and its abominations. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after the detestable things and the abominations, I'll bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. So I want to emphasize this morning, verses 19 and 20. I will give them one heart, a new spirit I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh, give them a heart of flesh, preached on that on uh, Resurrection Sunday, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Last week we talked about the land promise, which is earlier in this text. God promises to give them again the, the land of Israel, restore the land of Israel to them. And that I told you last week that has a lot to do with the biblical concept of God's presence. In other words, it's like, um, I told you to think of it as God lives in this land, that's why we're going there. Not to say God doesn't dwell everywhere, omnipresence and all that, we'll talk about that more as we go, but, but that God is saying, this is where I'm going to set up shop, set up, literally set up a tent, and I'm going to live here, and you're going to, you're going to come with me and live with me there. That's the promise. And so, what then, I wanted to really press in more to this idea, this phrase that we use a lot in, uh, in Christian circles, the presence of God. What does it mean? Christians believe and have always taught that at the beginning, there was a man and a woman in a garden with God. Right? Adam and Eve in a garden with God, perfect union and communion there between man and woman and God. There was no sin to separate them. They enjoyed communion with one another. Sin, the eating, what we call the eating of the forbidden fruit, broke that communion with God. 
You might recall in the book of Genesis, in those early chapters, after they eat the fruit, God says, Adam, where are you? Right? Which is not because God lacks information in that moment. But that's what you say when somebody is at a distance from your presence. Right? Where are you? Where did you go? And that's, that's this idea communicated. And again, Hebrew is kind of tricky. Questions can also be statements depending on context. So, so you might also read it as, Adam, do you know where you are? Do you know what you've done? And so there's this, this brokenness then. Since then, since then, God be praised, He's been the one who has been reestablishing His communion, His fellowship with man. Okay? God has been the one who's been doing this. Several generations after Adam and Eve, we meet in the Scriptures a man named Abram. And God makes him a promise that he will have a son, even though he's really, really old. And then God waits. And he waits. And he waits. Actually, if you run the math on it, God waits 23 years before bringing his promise to pass. 23 years. Let me start here. If you are older than 23... If you are older than 23, do you remember what you were doing 23 years ago? Do you remember what your dreams were? Do you remember what you were hoping for? What you were aiming for? What you were desiring most? Do you have maybe any sense that some of those things have changed in 23 years? Abram's been waiting for 23 years, and this promise has not come to fruition. And then God comes to him and changes his name, Abraham, father of many, and reestablishes the promise, Genesis 17. This is what he tells him. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. What I'm going to share with you this morning is that ever since the garden, particularly ever since Father Abraham, God has been putting back together the breach, restoring the communion that was lost. And, and this moment in Ezekiel, when he says, they're going to be my people and I'm going to be their God after I put new hearts in them and take out their hearts of stone, is one part in that story and that process that I want to talk to you about this morning. And so Abram gets his name changed to Abraham. And what happened in that moment? God says, I'm going to be God to you and your offspring after you. So as far as Abraham knows, here's, here's what I'm going to offer to you this morning. As far as Abraham knows, what does it mean for God to be present? Presence of God. It doesn't just mean he hears a voice, though he does. Specifically, it means he's reminded of the promises and doubt is made to go away. Right? God says, this is my promise. I reestablish it for you. Don't doubt my words. I know it's been 23 years, Abram. I know that. Don't doubt my words. Right? The same phrase about I will be uh, your God, you will be mine, comes up again in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. When God says, I will take you to be my people, speaking of Israel, and I will be your God. There it is again. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Right? So, so now we see this again. 
Uh, Palmer Robertson calls this the Emmanuel principle, by the way. Right? I call it the Emmanuel promise that rings throughout all of Scripture. So for Israel in Exodus, what does, I will take you to be my people, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'll, this, this I'll be with you, present with you. What does it mean for Israel? It means they're getting delivered out of slavery. Right? God's keeping his promises to deliver them out of slavery. What did it mean for Abraham? I'm going to keep my promises, don't doubt me. If I'm going to be present with you, you can have faith in my promises, right? So, so my presence with you is you being confident in my promises. What, what do we have here? My presence with you is my deliverance for you. In Abraham's case, deliverance from doubt. In the Israelites' case here, deliverance from slavery. Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. One of the many places where God gives this land promise, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I can be in the same place as you in spite of your sin and I will walk among you. Here it is again. And will be your God and you shall be my people. Well, what's going on here? I'm going to give you this land. There's the promise. You will dwell there and enjoy its blessing. Promise again. I will dwell there with you, not abhor you because of your sin. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt thus far. And just as I delivered Father Abraham from doubt, and just as I delivered you from slavery, I'm now going to deliver you from displacement, not having a home, not being with me. Right? God is keeping his promises. That's what it means to have his presence. Okay? That's what I'm trying to show you. That there's this connection between God keeping his promises and making sure we believe them and don't doubt them and having God's presence. Those two go together. Now let's go back to our text this morning. Ezekiel chapter 11. What's the promise? Right? He said, uh, sorry, in the previous verse, I'm going to take out their heart of stones, give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules and obey them. There it is again. They shall be my people. I will be their God. So now what is he delivering them from? Sin and death, right? I'm going to take out their idolatrous hearts of stone, put in hearts of flesh. That's the, uh, we know from this perspective, from, from our vantage point, that's the new covenant deliverance that's coming for God's people. God being with us then. Here's my kind of thesis for the whole sermon. God being with us means God delivering us. That's what it means. That's what it means, right? So from Abraham, deliver you from doubt. I'm going to keep my promises. Moses, I'm going to deliver them from slavery. Leviticus, I'm going to deliver them from this displacement, this kind of spiritual and physical homelessness, bring them together in a land. Ezekiel, you are go again, we're going to be rescued. Not just rescued from our doubt or rescued from slavery or isolation, but from our own idolatrous hearts in Ezekiel. So God with us means God is our deliverer. God with us means God is our deliverer. How do I know that for sure? Because this really comes to a head in Matthew. The book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 20. As Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. You guys know this text. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For, why is his name Jesus? He will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves, right? So again, 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he quotes from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name. Stop. What you're expecting to see there is Jesus, because that's what we were just told. Right? Have you ever thought that's weird? What, what I would have expected to read there from Matthew is that the prophet Isaiah said, you'll call his name Jesus, because that's what the angel just said. <laughs> he didn't say call his name Emmanuel. He said Jesus. Why? Because God with us, Emmanuel, and God saves us, Jesus, are the same thing. God delivering us and God's presence with us are tied together. They're, they're united. It's, it's one concept. How about the Great Commission? You familiar with the Great Commission? This, this word that Jesus gives at the end of his ministry. After his resurrection, he tells his apostles, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All nations, baptizing them, teaching them. Why? Because I'm with you. What does that deliver us from? Delivers us from fear. Confidence in what Jesus has given us. In every case where God talks about his presence, God promises that he's coming or he's already here. And yet, let me just add, I'll add this. Sometimes when we talk about the presence of God, we speak of it as though it's something we lack and we have to acquire. I would challenge you to find that in Scripture where it says, it's like, where is God? We can't find him. God says, I'm going to be with you. You don't get to lose track of me, right? I am with you because you have my promises. Let me put it to you this way. If you have God's promises and that's where your faith is grounded, he can't leave you. He's promised he won't. He can't leave you. He's promised he won't. Whatever experience we might have of like, of like pleasantness in worship or in times like that is, is good. It's a gift from God. But it's not the same thing as God's presence. Where is God? God is wherever He chooses to be, wherever He puts His name. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Do what with them? Put my name on them. Put my name on them baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This would have brought them back to the moment of the temple in the Old Testament where God says, this is where my name is going to dwell. And he says, I'm going to put my name on you because God with us means God is our deliverer. God with us means God is our deliverer. This is why we preach, by the way, this is why Christians preach that there's no salvation in anyone except Jesus. Right? Because because to have God delivers me and saves me. I have to have his presence. I have to know who he is. Why don't you go to the next text? It's Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Many of you are familiar with it. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? Speaking of the name of Jesus. I know that to many, of, uh, well, to, to many unbelievers, if you're not a Christian, that might sound very arrogant. If you're not a Christian, you might wonder, with all the religions in the world, right? how can Christians be so arrogant as to claim that Jesus is the only way to know God and to be in fellowship with God? 
It's the only way we've got to know the creator of all things. And we must, in fact, know him or else we are under his judgment on the last day. How can we say that? Well, on one level, like on the most basic level, we have no other option. Like, so if, if you are not a Christian but you're friends with Christians, like take, take pity on them, be patient with them. We can't say anything else. Our Lord has given us this word, and so we say amen. We have no option. If we say we believe Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures, then we are bound by what he taught and by what those scriptures say. But I can understand that if you are not a Christian, the claims of Christ and the claims of Christianity might sound arrogant to you. There are, I think, at least two reasons for that, why they might sound arrogant. One, it might be because you believe that the spiritual realm, the supernatural realm, is more fluid and more flexible than the physical realm. And by that I mean, you would likely agree from me that if, if upon leaving today, you, you would agree with me that, that upon leaving today, you're going down Jackson Street, and there's a tree in the middle of the road. And you're, you're going fast, and you say, I choose not to believe that there's a tree in the middle of the road. And you speed up. You will soon discover why your vehicle is equipped with airbags, Right? Now, we would agree there. I don't think there would be any disagreement that the tree is the reality. The crushed car will soon become a reality no matter what you believe. That's the natural realm. But then for some reason, when we talk about the supernatural realm, the spiritual realm, it's all opinion, all possibility, all conjecture, all interpretation, all choices, all preferences. Why? I'm just... Just going to put that question to you. Why? Can you give me a reason, if you believe that, why you believe it? Who taught you to believe that about the spiritual realm? How do you know it's true? Why do you believe that the spiritual realm would not have the same consistency that we observe about the physical realm? Okay? So that's, that's one possible reason, uh, that you believe there's more flexibility in the spiritual realm than in the physical realm. Another possibility is that you think all religions are basically the same. Or perhaps you believe that to claim one is right and the others are wrong, as Jesus and his apostles do in fact claim, that that, that itself is wrong. Okay, so maybe you've heard the illustration of the three blind men and the elephant. Right? This one's made the rounds before. Right? So you have these three blind fellows that walk up to an elephant. How they got to an elephant in the middle of the jungle, let's not bother. Uh, but these three blind men come up to an elephant and they say, what is it? One grabs the leg and he says, it's a tree. And the other one kind of falls forward and touches the kind of midsection of the elephant and says, no, no, it's a wall. And then the other guy ends up grabbing hold of the trunk and he says, look out, it's a snake. Well, which one, you know, which one's right? Well, you know, so, so goes the story. That's really how religion works. We've all kind of got our own piece of the elephant, and Christians and Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and so on. But, you know, nobody has the full elephant. The problem with that story is it's being told from the perspective of someone who can see. Right? So someone who's like off, off like uh, maybe a quarter mile away observing all this madness with the three blind men and the elephant and they can see the whole elephant. And they say, I can see the whole thing and I know what's really going on here. So is it really the Christians who would be arrogant to make claims about what religions believe? Because you're claiming to see the whole picture of all religions if you say they're all the same. If you believe it's arrogant to make an exclusive claim on religion, to say this way of thinking about religion is right and all the others are wrong, or to claim that 
uh, God has given you revelation that's real and true for all people, those are really both two enormous claims. If you think that it's wrong that God has given revelation to people through the Scriptures, I would simply invite you to realize that you are doing, you are engaging in the very thing that you claim to reject. When you say all religions are basically the same, you are teaching a doctrine about what all religion is. Okay? It's, it's actually the same thing. And so one man says only one of these is right, Christianity, say. And another, one, another man says all of these are equally right. Both of them are preaching. Both of them are making claims about religion and how to properly think about it. Both are trying to convert you to their faith. My point is simply that having a dogma and a doctrine about God is inescapable. The question is, can you be honest about what yours is, and can you defend it, and if so, by what standard? That's perhaps another sermon. Ultimately, Christianity is not a set of doctrines. It's not less than that, it's just more than that. It's a faith, it's a religion, supremely summed up in a person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And if you want to know more about what it means to believe in him and to follow him, please talk to me or make an appointment to talk with me later. I'll drop everything. But to return to the point, God with us means that God is our deliverer. God with us means that God rescues us. So how is God with us then? How do we get the presence of God in our life? Yeah? What I've been trying to show you is that if if it's true, if God is with us means God rescues us, God is with us means God is our deliverer, if, if that's true, then how do we get God's presence and how do we get God's salvation? Right? They are, in fact, the same question or uh, two questions with the same answer. God with us means God is our deliverer and our Savior. This is often the greatest challenge in the spiritual life. Okay? Here it is. To believe that this gospel of grace is a gift that we cannot earn. That's really hard for you in your flesh to believe. You naturally want to negotiate with God. And so even uh, just, just to receive it as His gift, to believe that we are in fact secure in it and can be assured of it, even as we continue to plead with God to open our eyes to our own sin and arrogance and pride and show us where we need to repent. How do we get God's salvation? How do we get it? Because if we get salvation, we get His presence. So how do we get God's salvation? By His own words. By His own words. By His word, He puts His name on us, well, specifically in, in baptism, but then broadly throughout your Christian life. God puts His name on you by His word. He puts His name on you and then fills you with His Holy Spirit. We hear that word in preaching. We are washed with that word in baptism. We receive that word in bread and wine. Don't you see? Any Israelite would know the answer to the question, where is God? They would say, wherever he's put his name. That's where he is. And God put his name on you, Christian, in baptism. That's why Jesus can say, to go back to the Great Commission, that's why Jesus can say, he says, take them, baptize them, teach them what I've told you, and then what's true of them? I'm with you always. I'm with you always. How? Because he keeps these promises of his own words. Don't you see? 
It's, it's his own words that he's given to us, his own words of salvation and deliverance. That's how we have his presence. And so he puts his name on you. And then he gives you his words, his teaching, his forgiveness, his gospel, his table, every last one of his promises that hold you and sustain you until they wake you up on the last day. So how do we get the presence of God? Okay. Now, very common answer that maybe I would have anticipated at the start of the sermon is, well, wait, how do, how do I get the presence of God? Trick question, preacher. God is everywhere, <laughs> right? God is everywhere. And, and yes, we do believe that. Can you jump to the next text, please? Now, there are plenty of texts we could go to to talk about that. I think the easiest one, just in terms of a proof text, is Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord, the eyes of Yahweh, are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So God is everywhere, yes? Well, yes. But he's not everywhere forgiving sins. He's not everywhere giving wisdom and reconciling conflict and rescuing sinners. In some places, if I can put it this way, he is present exercising judgment. What you learn in the Old Testament and in the New is that God reveals himself to his people and he says, come and find me and be with me here. Every Israelite knew the last thing you wanted, the last thing you wanted was an experience of God that was not mediated by his word and sacrifices. That would kill you. That would destroy you. So how do we get the presence of God? Well, I can tell you that if you jump on Amazon and just start hunting around for presence of God books, that there is no end to the writing, okay? All of them will give you different metrics, like here's how you get the presence of God, and once you get it, here's how you keep it, and once you keep it, here's how you spread it, and then here's how you soak in it, and be careful, here's how you can lose it, or they'll tell you the reason you don't have the presence of God is maybe because you're praying incorrectly. You have to pray these magic words in this kind of posture with this level of specificity. When what God wants you to have and possess is the comfort and assurance that he's with you. And just like Father Abraham, to cast away all your doubting. The comfort and assurance that he's with you. This is a promise that he keeps, not something you're failing to bring about, Christian. It's a promise that he keeps. God has kept his promise to fill his people with his own Holy Spirit. Let's go back to Ezekiel. He says, I'm going to take out your hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh. The result of that is that you'll walk in my ways and they shall be my people and I shall be their God. You see, the scriptures do not separate the promises of God and the rescue of God from the presence of God. These things always go together. And so... Is God present in our midst, in our homes, in our church, in our lives? The answer is yes. Why? Because he promises to be present wherever his word is spoken, wherever his sacraments are shared together, and where we walk in faith and integrity together, loving fellowship. And, you know, fellowship includes not just, hi, how you doing, let's have lunch, but fellowship includes confession of sin, Honesty about who we are, who we are before God, who we are uh, before our families and before our friends. This is our great new covenant hope that Jesus Christ is building a temple for his own glory, for his own dwelling. And in the New Testament, he says, you are stones in that temple, right? 
You are stones in the temple, living stones in the temple he is building. And so, where is the temple that God dwells? Wherever his people gather together to hear his word, to feast on him, to love one another, even when that's really hard. That is the presence of God in our midst. Because we're giving his promises to one another. The presence of God. This being present where God is present will sometimes be attended by the radical experiences, by radical experiences of, of dramatic emotion that are without explanation. Other times, the presence and promises of God will trouble you. Other times, they will bring you unimaginably sweet comfort. Other times, you will be given a realization of an ongoing sinful pattern in you that is slowly suffocating you. And you need to repent out loud to God, to to men, ask for forgiveness. And God is present in a moment like that. But what we must know today, dear saints, is that God has promised to be with us. He's promised to be with us. He's promised to be with us and He does not lie. So that great promise is for our comfort. And frankly, it is the work of Satan, your enemy, to send you into a spiral of doubt, Christian, wondering if you will finally one day get around to having God's presence if you do this Christian life thing right. That's a false teaching. And I just earnestly want to liberate any of you from it who are under that kind of bondage. It says you have to do these exercises, these practices, say these words at these times, in these postures, and then maybe, if you're good enough, you'll finally get the presence of God. Emmanuel's already here because he keeps his promises to save us. And so, God's presence has already been promised to you as yours to have until the very end of the age. And so God with us means that God is our Savior. God with us means that God is our Deliverer. Let's reverse it. God is our Deliverer and God saves us means that He's with us. And so I close with this this plea. Do you know God or do you want to? There is only one way to know Him and that is as your Savior, His name is Jesus. And we have plenty to say about him from his own word. And so knowing God and being in his presence, in his family, accepted before his face, delivered and forgiven from all of your sins, means confessing faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe in Jesus, some of you have questions, some of you have excuses. And some of you have just good old-fashioned rebellion. And so I'm, I'm leaving it to you to think on where you are before the Lord. And to not leave it until any other day except today. Because knowing God comes by confessing faith in Jesus Christ. And by that faith, we have rescue from our sins, which means we have His presence. And so as we continue to walk together in that presence confident of our great salvation. 
We're going to sing in just a moment, and then we're going to come to the table where Jesus meets us, right? Is there anything more present than here's my flesh and blood? Like, I, I, I would have trouble thinking of another way that Jesus could be clearer about saying, I'm right here. Come, come and find me because I'm right here. And so as we rejoice in that and commune with our Lord, it's for our good, for our glory, for our encouragement, our strength, and for His glory. And so let's pray, and then we'll sing together to prepare our hearts before we come. Our Father, we thank You that by faith in the salvation of Jesus Christ, we stand in Your presence. Before Your face, we live our lives, unable to hide anything from You even if we wanted to. And so we pray that you would refresh our hearts with this good news to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength to be strengthened and encouraged and challenged by the promises of your word by which you're present with us. And so we ask again, Lord, be our strong deliverer from all that oppresses us from all that destroys us, from all the sin that threatens us. Be our guard, our deliverer, our strong warrior. And so we continue to pray until our very last breath. Keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.